It's Friday, June the 5th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining the social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns of a world that's ever-changing, it seems, due to the COVID-19 pandemic and much else. I'm Neil Ferguson, the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in for our usual host, Bill Whalen, who's off this week. Now, those of you who've been watching us regularly know the format. For you first-time viewers, this is a conversation in which three Hoover Senior Fellows, we call ourselves the Good Fellows, it's irony, by the way, offer our insights into what may lie ahead in these complicated times. This week, we're introducing the first of what will be a regular feature for Good Fellows. We're joined by a guest Good Fellow. Roland Fryer is Professor of Economics at Harvard University, a former MacArthur Genius Grant recipient and winner of the John Bates Clark Medal. His research ranges from education reform to inequality to the police use of force. And after more than a week of protests, most peaceful but some violent, following the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, I couldn't think of anyone better qualified to help us understand the key issues of this moment than Roland. Roland, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a long time since I was called a good fellow. It's good. <laughs> well, it's, it's great you're able uh, to join us from Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? I, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, yes. Let's uh, also meet the regular uh, good fellows. Uh, and so it's my pleasure also to introduce John Cochran, another economist uh, and the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. He's also the author of the Grumpy Economist blog, which really is required reading now more than ever. Hi, John. Thank you for the plug. Always a pleasure. It is essential reading. I've learned so much from it this year. Last but certainly not least is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, the Hoover Institution's Food and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. Prior to returning to Hoover, he served as the National Security Advisor to the President of the United States. General McMaster is also the author of a new book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. It's coming out this fall, but you can pre-order it now. Hello, H.R. Hey, Neil. Good to be with all of you, and welcome, Roland. So, Roland, I'm going to jump right in uh, with you. I want to actually start with a bit of personal history. I've read your not-yet-published autobiography, which you were kind enough to share with me, and it, it has one hell of a line in it, and I'm going to quote it. When I was 15, or soon after I turned 16, I can't be sure of the chronology, I found myself with three or four police handguns pointed at my back, Ron, can you tell us a bit about that? Because it's not an experience many Harvard professors have had. Well, how much time do you have? But yes, I think it's, um, it's uh, I've been clear that uh, as a teenager, I was a bit of a knucklehead. And uh, yeah, I've been written about as if I was a gangster, but I prefer the term just, just good old fashioned knucklehead. And in that instance, um, I was, uh, m- my father was facing um, some, pretty steep criminal charges and I gathered my brain trust of friends over to my house for a game of video games and to discuss how I was going to make money and intent on being helpful uh, someone said you should join us we're going to plan a robbery somebody else had another idea of, uh, of illegal type activities I could join but I just was kind of a knucklehead so I, I decided I would start um, uh, selling merchandise out of my trunk let's put it that way I think the statute of limitations on knuckleheadery is probably over. Um, and so I was doing that and I was 15 years old, I think, because I didn't have a driver's license quite yet. And uh, I had just finished uh, selling uh, a particular brand of um, fake purses out of my trunk when uh, I saw the, the police in my rearview mirror. And I remember darting into a strip mall, going into a, a, a uh, sports memorabilia um, outlet just to kind of see if they were looking at me. I'm looking out of the window. The police go by. I think, oh, it's not me. Later that day, I see them again. And I see a friend of mine, uh, 
from school. Uh, it's a white kid. He must have been 15, too. And I just figured I should probably pick up this white kid, see if he wants to ride home. That way, the police will be nicer to me. So I picked him up, and we're riding together. And uh, two police cars get behind me. And long story short, the, uh, I, for some silly, unbeknownst to me reason now, nearly 30 years later, tell the friend that we should probably get out of the car and start walking. We'll be better off on foot. And we did that. And a police car screamed in front of us. They jumped out of uh, the two cars behind us. And um, it's an experience that really haunted me and still haunts me sometimes because the, the, I can't even really describe how it is to feel that they just start screaming. It was tremendous commotion, freeze, get down on your knees. And here we are on the pavement, uh, head bowed, hands in the air, and um, their guns pointed at the, at the back of our heads. And so uh, that is the experience. Um, and uh, police use of force, uh, whether it's pulling guns or putting hands on people is a traumatic event. So I, I see this as a kind of good illustration of, of excessive use of force by the police. I have to make my own confession now. I got into a little trouble with the police in Glasgow when I was even younger than 15. We were just casually shooting stones at passing cars, the kind of thing <laughs> that we used to do for recreation in that part of Glasgow. But I remember when the police grabbed me and sort of urged me to desist, it wasn't with guns pointed at my back. There was none of that drama. So the reason I brought that story up was, I think, to make it clear to people watching that you have first-hand experience of this, as well as having written some of the most illuminating articles on the subject uh, in, in recent years. I, I wanted to ask you another kind of personal question. When you heard the news about George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis, and maybe you, like me, watched the video, what was your reaction? Um, the, the only human reaction, outrage. Um, um, and for me, as I just described, uh, personal, um, all of these videos, George Floyd, uh, Walter Scott, uh, they, they hit me at a, at a deep personal level um, because um, some of my experiences with the police, not all, um, let me be clear, but some of them. And, the, and it's just like, uh, for lack of better words, um, uh, just a, a, almost a stress response from the types of personal interactions I have with, have had with police. When I see something like this, it brings back those memories. So I want to jump forward in time to, to your academic work. Uh, a little time after we got to know one another at, at Harvard, I remember you, you were late for our first meeting for coffee because you'd been pulled over by, by the police just <laughs> driving into central Cambridge. You published a, an amazing uh, article that attracted a huge amount of attention and controversy. This was a paper in 2016 that, that argued that, that although they did seem to disproportionately use non-lethal viol violence against African-Americans, uh, you couldn't find evidence that they disproportionately used lethal violence. Now, this goes against the grain of all that people kind of assume or think they know on this subject. Can, can you tell us a bit about that paper and how you came to that, that striking conclusion? Sure. Um, the, the paper was started right around the time we had a lot of protests in whatever, 2014, 2015. Um, protest is not my ministry. Data is my ministry. So I decided to collect a lot of data on this subject. Um, we, were, we used the New York City stop and frisk data that has 5 million observations from 2003 or so to 2013. And what's nice about that data set is it has lower level uses of force from putting your hands on someone to actually uh, using a baton or putting them in handcuffs when they're actually not arrested things like that. And the reason that's important is that putting your hands on someone in the process of arresting them doesn't get coded. That's not a 
uh, that's not considered a use of force by most police departments. That's just uh, kind of standard operating procedures. So we were able to collect that data, which was from the police perspective, the Department of the Bureau of Justice Statistics also collects other data from the civilian perspective, uh, and those were on lower level uses of force. Uh, the more ambitious part of that was we, through freedom of information requests and um, conversations with lots of police departments, were able to work with 10 municipalities to put together a pretty large database on police shootings. Now, I'm gonna make one really important statistical point. The, the, the key to our database about police shootings is that we not only have the shootings that happen uh, in statistical parlance, John and I call them the ones, but we also have a series of observations where shootings might have been justified, but shootings didn't happen. And I just wanna stress that, particularly given the debate that's going on, this is a really key part of, of uh, the analysis. And here's what we found. On the lower level uses of force, there are large racial differences in how force is used, okay? So in a average traffic stop in the stop and frisk data, uh, blacks were 53% more likely to have force used on them in a stop. If you were to ask civilians their perspective in the civilian police contact survey, that 53% goes up to 300%, okay? So no matter what data set we use, uh, there are large racial differences in use of force. Let me just caveat that by saying that even when uh, the police report that the subject, if you will, is fully compliant, that might be the, one of the more depressing things that we found that hasn't gotten much coverage, which is even when the police officer checks off the person was fully compliant, black people are more than 20% more likely in those interactions to have force used upon them. Okay, that was part A of the paper. Part B of the paper was to use that uh, data that we collected from the police departments to understand whether or not there were racial differences uh, in officer-involved shootings. You said lethal force. I want to just be clarify that a bit by saying officer-involved shootings. So things like um, George Floyd would not be captured here because that was not a shooting. That was uh, something different. In that data, we find no racial differences no matter what we do with the data. Okay, and I just want to be clear about something else. This was a surprise to me because partly because of my own lived experience, partly because of the, the, the play, part A of the paper. We had eight full-time research assistants who gathered that data. It, you know, police reports and officer-involved shootings come as 50-page documents. We took that and transformed that into 200 explanatory variables, et cetera. Okay, after we did that and we found this result, we hired eight new research assistants, gave them the raw data, and had them code it up again, just to ensure, okay? Um, I told one of my colleagues that, thinking this would show him how rigorous I am, and his response was, wow, you have too much research money. But, but you, you, get what I'm, you get what I'm saying, okay? And we, we were really uh, trying to be as careful as we could be, and we just didn't find any racial differences. Here's one of the things I think is really interesting. In the Houston data, we not only have the kind of ones and the zeros, but in Houston, on the strong hip, uh, they ca carry a, a Smith & Wesson or a Glock, a regular a police pistol. On the weak hip, they carry a taser. And so one of the, as economists would call it, discrete choice estimations one can do here is whether or not in an interaction, you're more likely to choose the pistol or the taser, okay? And what we found, again, is in those interactions, uh, race was not important, it didn't, it didn't predict whether or not you, you shot with a pistol or a taser. And so that was surprising, and that's what you see uh, written about. But I want to just, I hope we can open up for discussion. I'm, I'm tired of hearing my own voice. But the, the, the thing that's important to me is that uses of force, the lower level uses of force, are happen, they happen thousands of times per day. Okay? Shootings, thank God, are relatively rare. Right? So in our New York City data, for example, over that 10-year period, I believe there are roughly 20 shootings. And that is awful obviously that goes without saying but there were one million uses of force okay and so the kind of point of the paper which got lost was yes black lives matter but black dignity also matters and we've got to think about how we can um lower the racial differences in the lower level uses of force because to me that is one of the big um things where I believe we can actually really have uh, meaningful reform with these guys. So we're gonna 
spend some time talking about reforms and what needs to change. Uh, obviously, one thing that that always should happen in a case where uh, there is a, a shooting or as appears to be the case with the George Floyd case, an asphyxiation, there needs to be an investigation. Uh, and it, it seems kind of self-evident that, uh, that, that, that that would be desirable. Uh, but at the risk of forcing you to do just a little bit more talking before I turn to the other good fellows, let me, let me ask about your latest research, the paper you just did, uh, which I don't think is even published, but which uh, you've presented in a number of, of seminars. And this is another paper with a really surprising result, which tells us that in some cases, uh, having an investigation into, into a police shooting can have unexpected, unintended, counterproductive results. Just walk us through that that last bit of research. And then, and then John is bursting to jump in. All right, John, John, okay, jump in, jump in, go on. Before we move on, uh, Roland just said something incredibly important here and, and it went by really fast and I don't want people to miss it. So I, think I'm, I think the important thing here is to listen to both sides or all sides. Um, and what Roland, there is a sort of counter argument that says what Roland's research got picked up for, hey, there isn't a racial disparity in, in lethal force. Uh, and that's in some sense a silly counterargument. For one, the police use too much force on all of us. Uh, but second, what, what, you, what you said is that there's so much of this non-lethal use of force that is racially disparate. Uh, and I think what's happened is it, it, people, people push back on the, oh, they're shooting so many African-Americans. And, and you say, well, but you know, look at the crime levels and other things, which are in some sense irrelevant. <laughs> Uh, it's a symbol that the police shootings themselves are a symbol of a wider frustration. And I think exemplified beautifully in your numbers on the sublethal use of force uh, and, and similar problems. So you, you said a piece of social science that I think rings very true to helping us understand the problem and get past this sort of divide about, about the, the headline numbers. Okay. I just wanted to, you said something brilliant. I needed to stop and say it three more times so our readers didn't miss it. And now let's talk about investigations. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of itching to get HR in because he knows a bit about lethal violence uh, from the military side, but we'll, we'll, we'll hold off and, and, and turn to, to the general just, just in a minute. Let's come back to the investigations that don't quite have the intended outcome because this is another really surprising finding. Uh, Tell, tell us about how you went about that research and quickly what the kind of outcome was. Absolutely. Um, so it's, it's the, the companion paper to the first one. Once you realize there are racial differences in lower level, or at least once you document the racial differences in lower level use of the force, the natural question is, what should we do about it? Well, the federal government um, in 1992 uh, granted the attorney general the power to investigate police department departments who might have a pattern or practice of uh, systemic discrimination in a way that violates the Constitution. This came as a result after, after the first viral video that I know about, which is the Rodney King beatings in LA. So this was as a result uh, from that. So what we did was we put all these investigations together. We uh, turned our, our lab into a FOIA machine and got all the crime rates and et cetera from, from lots of police departments across, hundreds of police departments across the country. And to put it uh, succinctly, here's what we found. In general, investigations are relatively benign, okay? So um, uh, on average, when a city is investigated using this pattern of practice investigation, if anything, crime goes down a little bit, but not a lot happens. But there's a lot of heterogeneity. Some investigations are associated with really large increases in crime uh, and others purely zero. And what we found was that the thing that delineates the data is investigations that happen when there are preceded by a viral incident, right? So there's social unrest, you go in and you investigate. So uh, examples of that are uh, Ferguson, Chicago, Baltimore, Riverside in the 90s, et cetera. Those cases are associated with large increases in homicide and total crime. And when I, I say like large, that. I mean very large, okay? We estimate on average over the next two years, there's 450 excess homicides relative to control cities, okay? And 33,000 
excess felony crimes. And the reason, our, our leading theory about why, is that uh, the quantity of policing goes down. So in Chicago, in the month before the investigation and the month after the investigation, police activity, contact with civilians, goes down 90%. It goes down 46% in St. Louis. It goes down nearly 60% in Riverside. And in Baltimore, it literally goes to zero. Okay? So, um, and let me just be super clear before we open this up. This does not mean we should not investigate police departments. There are other ways, right? In Minnesota right now, they have charged the officers. That's an option. There are other ways to do it. And what I'm trying to, what the data is basically telling us, surprise, surprise, is that there's no such thing as a free lunch. What we have to do is think about how we investigate police departments, how we root out the bad cops without changing the behavior of the good ones. And that, uh, John is smarter than I am, but, so he can figure that one out, because that's one heck of a hard economic problem to figure out how to actually do that. Yeah, so, and I, it's really important, that point you just made at the end there. I spent some time also this week talking to uh, a retired uh, police officer, and he said, uh, that when he heard that there had been 30 complaints about the officer who's now accused of George Floyd's murder, his, his, his reaction was that's way, way off the charts. Uh, and, and we know from other research that most of these problems arise from a minority of, of police officers. So this is a, a really great moment to throw it to the other economist uh, that, that we have, which is our own John Cochran. So John, one quick thing before John, sure, absolutely. Quick thing, which is, I should have stated the obvious point. When there is a viral incident, but there's no investigation, crime does not go up. Okay. So Minneapolis with Philando Castile, viral event, no investigation. If anything, police interaction with community went up. Okay. So that, that's important so that we really isolate the causal effect of A on B. It's an amazing finding, and it, 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 it was uh, when you and I were speaking about this earlier in the week, you made the point that nobody talks about the people who fall victim to homicides after these investigations cause police activity to, to drop. They're the forgotten victims. So, so this was my chance to throw it to John with a question about a policy proposal that has arisen in our fair state of California, namely to reduce police funding as a response to this problem. This, I, I believe, is uh, the idea of the mayor of Los Angeles. Um, John, you, you're someone who thinks a lot about rational policy solutions to a whole variety of, of problems. Does this strike you as a good solution to the problem we're discussing? <laughs> yeah, I wonder what you think I'm going to answer to that one. <laughs> I think there's a large, larger question here. I mean, my, my question as an economist is how do we get out of this? How do we not turn this into a replay of 1968? I grew up in the South side of Chicago in the 1970s. It was not a pretty place. Um, lots of neighborhoods just never got rebuilt after the 60s. Uh, uh, street, it was common to get mugged. Street gangs went up and down. There, were, there was no fancy cappuccino bars in, in the South side of Chicago uh, back then. Um, and uh, this uh, event strikes me has been grabbed by a very left-wing political agenda. I mean, if you listen to NPR, as I have to when I drive around, or the New York Times, uh, you know, the only answer is a extreme left-wing agenda, and we're not even allowed to talk about uh, anything else. Um, for example, the mayor of Minneapolis and the police chief, I think it was, uh, noted this number of complaints. And, you know, when asked, why didn't you fire him, says, well, we have a policeman's union. I'm not allowed to fire him. And to some extent, you know, the inner city has now been ravaged by police unions and teachers unions, leaving young, uh, young minority kids with horrible educations and, and, uh, and, and a police force that is, uh, that is at war with their local communities. And what a tragedy. So, yeah. Uh, my guess would be that defunding the cops, um, sending in instead an army of do-goody social workers uh, is not going to help a lot. It's going to turn the inner cities into a Batman movie. Uh, and and I'm, I, I want to hear from Roland. I, that was just all a, <laughs> a way of asking a question. How do we 
get out of this? How do we, it's fairly clear what kind of reforms you can do, but the left says, no, reform isn't acceptable. We, we need to restructure society and until you get rid of Trump and universal basic income and, and Medicare for all and defund the police and so on and so forth, nothing will happen. Um, how, how can we move ahead with sort of sensible reform? It strikes me what we need is more money for the police. We have a police force that has that uses more force so that it can have less number of people. More people who can use less force, the idea of commu- you know, cops, community police who actually get to know the people there so that when you go ask who shot uh, some guy, people will talk to you, seems to be the way to go about it. Um, Roland, I'm gonna throw that into your lap. How do we get out of this and, and not turn it into what seems to be the predictable outcome here? that the, the, the stores that got looted never come back. Um, people leave, uh, police leave, neighborhoods turned over to, to, to street gangs, crime goes up, um, many more young men, primarily young men shot by each other, uh, no jobs, education opportunity, and replay the 1970s. I mean, what a disaster. How, how, how can we avoid that? Uh. I feel like I should pass that to someone else. That's a tough one. Um, I think that, but I think you alluded to the, the to the point, which is, um, yes, we need to reform police departments, but we also need to reform the other things that go into uh, economic mobility. We need to figure out. I mean, education needs to be reformed. Maybe that's not very popular to say these days, but it's really important. We 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 know that the key driver of mobility is. Uh, education. I think we need to reform. We could start with the lower level uses of force. It's easier to start talking about reform when we're talking about putting hands on someone or, or arrest or putting handcuffs on them before they are uh, without arrest than it is in a, in a more uh, life or death situation. Of course, that's not going to cure at all, but you get where I'm going with this. Maybe we can start by collect, requiring police departments to collect data on police use of force. Maybe we can add on to that a set of incentives that would disincentivize lower level uses of force. When I embedded myself in police departments in Camden and and Houston and other places, it was almost like a a refrain as if they were taught it in the academy. When you talked about officer-involved shootings, the refrain that would come up over and over and over again was uh, discharging your weapon is a life-changing event. Discharging your weapon is a life-changing event. I never met a police officer that said putting their hands on a young black male was a life-changing event. We, we know incentives uh, matter. The question is whether or not they can be applied here smartly. Can, can we so, talk about, um, you know, police union contracts which stop police chiefs from, get it, from firing known bad cops? And, and, and that- Or know, how you distribute cops relative to their time on the force. A lot of folks are coming right out of the academy and going into the most troubled neighborhoods, right? Include, uh, including some of the officers who were involved uh, as, as yeah. observers and, and perhaps accomplices in Minneapolis in the murder of, of George Floyd. These, these were guys who were just uh, absolutely new on the job uh, in I think three cases. HR, I need to throw this to you now because Although your, your government job was as a national security advisor and your concern was with uh, foreign threats to the United States, I know you've thought a lot about these issues. And of course, as a soldier, uh, you uh, were part of, of an army that has its own history uh, of uh, troubles with race relations uh, and also its own evolving practice in the way that you uh, deal with uh, violence, uh, organized and, and spontaneous. How do you think about this? And, and I've got one particular thing I want to ask you about, but let, let's just start with the, the general question of, of how the army, how, how somebody with a military background views a, a crisis like this? Well, I think Roland and, and, and John's discussion about incentives is, is important, but What's really strikes me as maybe even more important is organizational culture and how you affect organizational culture. And, you know, you can't really make direct parallels to the military. And of course, you know, I, I never <laughs> discouraged our soldiers from using overwhelming firepower in, in combat, but we do have the juice and bellow uh, principles of, of discipline and discrimination. And in particular, when you're in complex counterinsurgency environments, it's very important very important to separate the enemy from the civilian population and, and to, at times, 
take greater risk. Ask your soldiers to take greater risk to force an enemy to reveal hostile intent so you can protect innocent lives. So there are some parallels there. Organizational culture, I think, is fundamentally what do soldiers in an organization, what do policemen and women in an organization, what do they expect of each other in terms of behavior? And if, if they respect that each other should, that, that each of them should treat, you know, treat, treat those who they're protecting with respect, that they shouldn't change the way they treat others based on their race, then you win because the organizational culture becomes self-policing. And I think, I think what's important, and this is, I'll get a little philosophical here, is to, to appeal to policemen or, or in my case, soldiers uh, from a Kantian perspective in terms of you know, treat men and women as ends in and of themselves, but also from kind of a hard-nosed John Stuart Mill utilitarianism perspective, right? And what he, we had a number of, of brave rifle standing orders for the 3rd United States Cavalry when we went into Iraq in, in really difficult uh, areas in 2005 and 2006. And one of those was every time you treat an Iraqi disrespectfully, you're working for the enemy. Right. So so I think it's it's important to have those sorts of expectations clear. But along with that has to be an effort to genuate real empathy, empathy in our case for Iraqi civilians and what they had been through, through the hell of Saddam Hussein, through the through the hell of the chaotic environment um, in, in the uh, post 2003 period and, and the degree to which they had been victimized by takfir Salafi, Salafi jihadist terrorists on one hand and and Shia Islamist militias on the other. And so once your soldiers really get it, they start to understand these people are caught up in this fight, then they have the degree of empathy that allows them to be more disciplined in their interactions, more compassionate in their interactions with, with Iraqi civilians. And, and so I think that the important question is, hey, what, what, do, what do they expect of each other? The other, the other aspect of this, we've already talked about it, right? I mean, this is a leadership failure. Okay, if, the, if there are 30 complaints against this guy, where are the leaders? I don't care what the unions say. What leader stepped up and said, this individual is no longer fit to be part of this organization? And wherever you see a breakdown in moral character in, in, in units in, in our army, and there have been breakdowns in these, in these complex wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, it comes mainly from the abdication of leadership, uh, really at that, at that platoon uh, company, squad level even. And so building up leaders, leaders who, who are moral and ethical is important. There's one other aspect of this as well, too. And, and I think it, we maybe began to allude to this a little bit by saying, why aren't there more senior police officers in the most difficult neighborhoods? Maybe because they just get worn out, right? And, and, and what, what happens, I think, is combat trauma. What I, my experience has been combat trauma can, can lead to the breakdown in moral discipline within organizations. And so leaders have to lead from a principled perspective, but they also have to have their eyes on their soldiers all the time. Who is becoming socially disconnected? Who is allowing rage to be a combat motivator? In our army, I mean, what I would try to emphasize to our leaders is, hey, there are only really two, uh, two, two valid motivations on every combat mission. And that's the mission and, 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 your fellow, and fighting for your fellow soldiers, right? And, and rage is not, is, not, is not one of those. So I think these are all, these are all I think, observations that are relevant to, to, uh, to, to police reform. And, and so I, just, I would just put an emphasis really on, on organizational culture and the need for moral, ethical, and psychological preparation for these very difficult duties that, that, uh, that our policemen and women have. So HR, these two different worlds kind of collided uh, this week when Senator Tom Cotton uh, published an op-ed in the New York Times under the headline, Send in the Troops. Do you agree that we need, and I'm going to quote from the article here, an overwhelming show of force to disperse, detain, and ultimately deter lawbreakers, and that the only way to bring the situation under control in some American cities today is for the president to invoke the Insurrection Act? Yeah, I, I, I think there's an unfortunate choice of words there, right? I would say where, wherever the word dominance has appeared or overwhelming, just put the word protect there, right? Because that's what, those, that's what those soldiers are there for. That's what the National Guard is there for. They're there to protect, actually, the protesters from looters and criminals who are taking advantage of these protests to advance an extremist or a criminal agenda. 
and they're there to protect your store owners. I mean, think about some of these store owners who spent their whole lives saving for this business that's now in flames, right? That's why, that's why the soldiers are there. And, and, you know, ever since 1794 and the Whiskey Rebellion, federal troops have had a role scores of times across our history. Uh, and, and, and really the, the, the first time that really there were limits placed on who could activate federal forces to do that was in 1858. And you know why? It's, it's because the army and northern states got sick and, and tired of governors and border states using federal forces to enforce the fugitive slave laws, right? So this is where you, then that's, that, that's when you get the decision that, hey, only the president can employ federal troops uh, in, 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 uh, for, you know, for, for domestic uh, restoration of, of order. And, and of course, there's been a, a pattern of, of very positive uses of federal forces, the federalization of the guard uh, to, 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 to allow the integration of schools in the South in 1957. Uh, and, and, and the latest example is the use of federal forces when, when uh, in Los Angeles, the National Guard and police were overwhelmed uh, after the, the, in the 1992 riots, after the, the acquittal of police officers who had beaten Rodney King. So I, I think what's so unfortunate about this is the whole thing, the whole issue has been framed incorrectly. It's, this, is not, this is not U.S. soldiers being used against our citizens. I mean, this is U.S. soldiers being used to protect our citizens, including those uh, who, who are, are, are protesting and, who, and who, are, who are justifiably outraged about the, the murder of George Floyd. Can, so, can, I, can I just add two points yeah. to, to HR's previous thing, which I thought were extremely important, empathy and trauma. I would say that I could not agree more on organizational culture. Uh, I think an incentive part can be a part of that, but the empathy thing is huge, but it, 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 empathy is not in training. Empathy is how police, inter you build it by how they interact with the citizenry, okay? So in mm -hmm. some cities I, I have visited, Police officers are like Uber drivers. They just go around looking for bad people. They, they, they don't have any particular community in mind. They just are roaming the streets. And if you look for bad people long enough, lo and behold, you find bad people, okay? Uh, on the other hand, I have been in places where they literally get out of their police cars and walk a beat and actually know the neighbors and help them with their groceries. And John and I would say, they have repeated interactions with the same person, so they're able to more easily screen who's a danger and who is not. That's what you described, HR, uh, in foreign nations, and that type of policing, I think, can be quite effective. And the last piece, just on the trauma. At the end of my first double shift, embedding myself in the police department, um, uh, we got a call that someone was overdosing at a row house, and I went in behind the police, and I watched someone uh, um, watch life leave someone. Someone died uh, uh, six feet from me, and I gotta admit, I, I, I just it, I'm not I'm not trained for that. I'm, I'm it, just, it really had a big effect on me. And as I was leaving, I, I, I left with the the chief of police, and I said, "Wow, can that the officers I was with can they get an hour? Can they get a half day? Can they get a day?" To, to, move, to, to move past what we just described. And the, the response, and I'm not criticizing it, but it was, come on, man, if I gave everybody an hour every time we saw someone overdose, I mean, I'd have a huge uh, labor supply problem. And it just blew my mind because I don't know how you do that work. And police officers have told me that they, they, it changes them. It changes who they are to have to see that on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think we got, we, any police reform has to, to encompass exactly the things that HR described. Absolutely, I just want to say, hey, you're, I think you're just dead on on this. I mean, you, this is, this is you know, your mental health of an organization, that is a, that's a leadership responsibility. And, and if leaders don't take that on, I, I mean, it's going to create problems, but it also, you're just not taking care of your, of your, of your policemen, your policewomen. And whenever something like that happens, what should occur is a critical event debrief at the right time. It might, might not be like the right the next day. It could be a couple days later. Hey, what, what did you see? What did you feel about this? And what happens is that kind of trauma gets compounded if there is a sense of powerlessness, right? And also if there is a sense of, hey, what, if, what, if I had done something differently, you know, I mean, is this my fault, right? There's also a sense of responsibility. And it's in those debriefs where you can help 
And there's an element of grief work uh, to this as, as well, to, to, to dealing with the effects of combat trauma. There's some good work on this. I mean, and, and when we trained our regiment uh, and our leaders uh, to, to, to deal with this, we drew on a lot of the scholarship in this area. And, and, um, and, you, and you know, also, also what, what's really needed a lot of times too is that you, what you need less oftentimes is a, is a, is a mental health professional what you really need most often is a community that has shared your experiences, that cares about each other, and then and helps helps get these people through. Get, gets people through this. That's why you have to have compassionate leadership. Now, you know this this police you know, this grizzled I'm sure police leader who said, "Oh, you know what? I mean, well, there is a place for a mild form of stoicism, right? But a mild form of stoicism, yeah. you know, and uh, to, to be able to cope with this and." And so I think you can strike that balance as a leader. You just have to recognize everybody reacts differently to these problem sets, right? Everybody has a breaking point. Everybody, every human being has a breaking point. And some people have different breaking points. It might have a lot to do with like, what are they going through at home right now as well, right? There can be compounding factors. So you just really, you need leadership that's empathetic and tuned in uh, to, to their policemen or in, in my case, their soldiers um, and, and look for those kind of warning signs. So as we begin to run out of time, I'm tempted to ask one last question of, of all of you, and that is, where do we go from here? I don't mean in terms of policy fixes of the sort we've been talking about. I'm thinking more of where we go from here socially and, and politically. I had a conversation with another African-American friend, Coleman Hughes, a uh, wonderful young essayist, fresh out of Columbia, one of the most interesting writers on, on these issues in America today. And and he said he was worried that, that this thing was just going to run and run. And in contrast to previous episodes where periods of protest that often escalate into violence die down after relatively short periods of time, measurable in days. He said his worry was that because of social media, with everyone equipped with a smartphone, there's an almost endless supply of viral material. And, and his, his worry was that this, this could really perpetuate the mood of of unrest, uh, and also the sort of stoking up of, 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 of feeling uh, across the political spectrum. So I guess my question is, are we going to be still talking about, about this problem in terms of protests, riots, even looting, a problem of urban order a week, two weeks, three weeks, even four weeks from now? Or do you think it's going to, to die down? I'll jump in on this one, Neil, because I really want to hear what... Uh, what, what Roland and John want to have to say here, but I, I think the only way we get through this together and get come stronger out of it is by talking to each other. And what I see now is really, I mean, we've used this word a lot here. I, I see like kind of the end of empathy in our society because you're not even allowed to talk about it in a lot of venues, right? So you have this interaction with bigotry and racism, which goes, you know, all the way back to the failure of the failure of reconstruction, Jim, Jim Crow, the myth of the lost cause, and you, so you have some people that, 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 that cling uh, to, to that kind of a racist ideology. Then on the other side, you have identity politics, right? <laughs> which, which also, I think, celebrates really you know, uh, not, not having the kinds of, of conversations, not, nobody being allowed to have the kinds of conversations that are necessary to, to, to bring us together. And in the middle, I think we, th those who are in the middle need to, be, need to come together on this issue you know, to reject the social media, have real conversations within our communities. Now, COVID makes it a little bit more difficult, but I mean, I think this only gets better with us talking about this problem and doing like kind of what we did today. I mean, there's a lot we agree on. Nobody ever gets to that though, because everybody's so stuck on what they disagree about. And if we really did care, if we really did you know, work on what we want to, what we agree on, I, th I believe we can make progress. I mean, I, I saw us do it in, in Iraq with an Iraqi police force that people really didn't like. That over time reformed and, and was and, and became more effective. Schools. I mean, my my mother taught in in uh, in inner city Philadelphia for thirty five years. Two of my daughters to teach for America. They were disgusted with the 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 um, you know the the uh, the the uh, the, uh, the situation with the unions and how they they perpetuated you know sort of the soft bigotry of low expectations and not and not and not, no standards. And so I mean I you know we have a lot to work on. And I think we can make a lot of progress if we talk and have discussions. But as, you're, as you mentioned, Neil, now we, we've, you know, we're becoming increasingly polarized for a number of reasons. 
One, one of which is the effect of social media, what you wrote about in the tower in the square. I mean, this is a, an, an algorithm and, and, and the avarice of these companies and the desire to, to make profits from, from, uh, from advertising is a factor as well. John, I mean, you mentioned earlier the way that uh, the far left has tried to somewhat opportunistically jump on board uh, this great outpouring of frustration in, in African-American communities. And it's clear, at least I, I think it's clear, that Antifa and, and other organizations have been trying to exacerbate uh, the situation and turn protests into, into riots, at least in some places. But there's obviously a, another side to the story in that the far right uh, is seeking in a variety of ways to uh, to instrumentalize the, the crisis. Uh, and so there is a sense in which uh, uh, the, the extremes are, uh, uh, have a lot to celebrate at the moment because they've just got the, the raw material, even if it's only in the form of endless uh, Twitter videos, to keep the culture war going. Do, do you see a kind of uh, path to the middle ground of the sort that, that HR's talking about in this very polarized environment we're in? Well, I think what you just mentioned is, is this whole thing has gotten hijacked politically <clears throat> by people who don't live anywhere near the communities in question. Uh, and I, I think, you know, what Roland said is, is very clear what we need. <clears throat> it's not just top down, it's bottom up. Uh, and the south side of Chicago, if the cops know somebody got murdered and walk around and say, you know, do you know who shot this guy? People climb up and they don't talk to the cops. You, you go to Palo Alto, a nice white neighborhood, and, and people talk to the cops. Um, now... The community needs cops. It needs, those communities are overrun with crime and that is one of the things that's stopping their economic development. Um, and that's a discussion that the community and the cops can have and need to have. But they're not allowed to talk about that. And, and in this national conversation, we're, we're not, you're not allowed to say this. You're not allowed to say we need better, more effective police force. And, and you know, in the national conversation of the, the New York Times uh, of, you know, the, the mainstream stuff. And um, I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure our video will last long on, on, uh, on the internet once subject to the, the uh, censorship of the internet companies. So yeah, we need to be able to talk about this, but we also need to be able to, you know, this, this, this cancel culture um, uh, thing is I, I think a real danger, which is, is just hijacking an important problem in our society for a fairly extreme left-wing agenda that is going to make the problem much worse, not just the problem of uh, treatment of African-Americans by the police, but the, uh, I think they can kill the inner cities again. The cities just lost all their bars and restaurants and businesses. So Roland. To COVID, then the riots and looting, those aren't gonna come back. Their budgets are in a horrible hole, thanks to uh, police unions, teachers unions, and government employees unions. And, and they, they could end up looking like a Batman movie um, in, in a couple of years if this movement has its way. And so what you said, we need to be allowed to talk about this and to find sort of the sensible reforms that Americans of, of goodwill throughout the center uh, back, but are afraid to say a word about. As I think we should admit to our, our listeners, we were really afraid to talk about these issues because we were and afraid the Twitter mob would come get us. All of America is afraid to talk about these issues for fear of, of that sort of thing. And, I, and uh, I think there's a good heart in all of America. You can see that in the peaceful protests. You can see that in the peaceful protest, the one most heartening thing, the peaceful protesters who turned in looters to the cops, um, you know, they, they understand how damaging this whole thing can be. Yeah, we need to talk, we need to be allowed to talk. Rona, let me come back, back to you as we draw this uh, to a, a conclusion. I guess when you were making your way from, what was it you said, knucklehead to, to football player, to math star, to young economist, to youngest, I think, African-American to be tenured at Harvard, along the way you were inspired by the hope that, that the data and the research that you were able to do on the data would, would set us free, would at least bring us to a better understanding of the kind of problems that we've been talking about on this show. You still so confident that, that the data, that hard headed social scientific research can, can get us there? Look, I'm not, 
I speak my mind because that's that's how my grandmother taught me. Uh, she, she said, uh, uh, you know, you don't have to be nice, but you got to tell the truth. And and I only have three friends, and I'm hoping to recruit HR as my fourth one here. And uh, so I'm not that worried about it. Let let, let me talk, let me just say the, get to what you want uh, your question, but I want to say the following. I understand why the folks are frustrated. Um, they look, there's a huge racial achievement gap that's been there for decades, and, and, and we've been talking about it. There's a big gap in life expectancy. There's a big gap in wealth. There's a big gap in fill in the blank. I get it. Everyone gets it. And we got to do something about it. Uh, whether I am as confident today that data is the way as I was 20 years ago, no, I'm not. I, I'm confident that it is necessary, but it is clearly not sufficient. Okay, I think it is necessary um, because we need to build policies that are smart. I, I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, but I got to get back to HR. We need empathy, but we don't really need sympathy. And 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 I prefer empathy. Uh, the the thing that we cannot do in this current environment is to lose the moment to virtue signaling instead of using the data to figure out how we can actually do better by the folks that are frustrated. If I get one more email from a corporate brand telling me we're all in this together, I'm gonna die a little inside, all right? Uh, what I want is truth and reconciliation. What I want is some is a is a corporate brand to say, you know what, we look back at our books the last decade, and we, we didn't do what we could have done. We could have done better. And, and we're going to do better. Uh, and so I think there are, I'm confident that the data is there. But part of the thing, Neil, that I've been doing, as you know, is how can we use the power of the market to make lives better and to increase opportunity? So in the beginning of my career, I just thought we write papers, we submit them to great journals, and then uh, we give lectures at Stanford and, and someone says, oh my goodness, that's the answer. And we do that. I don't believe that anymore. But I do believe that you can use the data to figure out what are the high leverage points where there are market failures. And then I can think, I think you can use actual capital to start businesses, start nonprofits, start whatever needed to change those levers. And, and I think that for me, that's what my next decade looks like. My next decade is, uh, you know, I, I stand with the protesters, the peaceful protesters. But that's not my ministry. Data is my ministry. And so I'm going to continue on that. But I think we need to use the power, the absolute power of the market to help us. Roland, I can't think of a better way to end uh, a Hoover Institution broadcast than what you just said. And as we're out of time, I'm going to seize this opportunity to uh, to call it a wrap, this is uh, the end of this episode of, uh, of Goodfellows. Uh, we'll be back next week uh, with a new topic, uh, a new conversation, and you never know, maybe also another guest. Um, on behalf of the Hoover Goodfellows, myself, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, and our special guest, Goodfellow Roland Fryer, as well as everyone here at the Hoover Institution, we wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week.